Speaking on the Senate floor in 1898, Indiana Senator Albert Beveridge said, American factories are making more than the American people can use. American soil is producing more than they can consume. Fate has written our policy for us. The trade of the world must and shall be ours. At the outbreak of the Spanish-American War in 1898, a poem was published in the Atlanta Constitution. It stated, Yes, sir. I fought with Stonewall and faced the fight with Lee. But if this union goes to war, make one more gun for me. And during one of his famous Fourth of July speeches in 1875, Frederick Douglass once asked, If war among the whites brought peace and liberty to the blacks, what will peace among the whites bring? That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back to Ending the Myth, the show where we use Greg Grandin's book, The End of the Myth, to stare directly into the abyss that is the soul of America. I'm Brian. And I'm Munya. And we are back, rolling solo, after a pair of fantastic interviews with Richard White and Matt Chrisman. I'm riding solo, solo. That was a great song back in 09. Hell yeah. (laughs) Uh, that's Jason all we. Derulo. <laughs> that's all we talk about in the interview is uh, Jason Derulo's <laughs> career, where it is, where it's going. <laughs> his TikTok, uh, his, his new TikTok endeavor, where he dresses up as Spider Man. Exactly, exactly. Um, but seriously, if you haven't heard those interviews yet, go back and listen. They're very good. <laughs> yeah, they're they fucking rock. They're they're really fun. Yeah, I promise. There's only a minimal amount of Jason Derulo talk. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we just have a 15 minute segment. That's it. So don't don't worry. It's not the full hour. Yeah, in each interview. <laughs> yeah, yeah, each. Yeah, by the way, 30 minutes combined. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, we finally made our way through the turbulent 19th century with its struggles over Indian removal and slavery, and on the horizon is the smooth seas of the 20th century. We're at the dawn of what would be labeled the American century. And the country, well, it's looking for a new identity. It's, uh, in short, it's trying to find a vibe. Vibe check. It, it is It is the vibe check century. And every, every, every year is a, new, is a new vibe check that we're, <laughs> that we're doing, you know. <laughs> Permanent vibe check. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the work of Reconstruction and the labor revolt that followed shattered the Jacksonian consensus in America. As the March West finally made its way into California, Oregon, and Washington, it seemed that there was no new land to buy off the working class and maintain the status quo of labor exploitation in the country. This led to a panic amongst the American ruling class. In his highly influential 1885 book, Our Nation, Reverend Josiah Strong warned of the moral decay caused by rising urbanism in the East. 
Socialism centers in the city, and the materials of its growth are multiplied with the growth of the city. Here is heaped the social dynamite. Men who are ready on any pretext to raise riots of the purpose of destruction and plunder. Here gather foreigners and wage workers who are especially susceptible to socialist arguments. It's kind of interesting. Franz Fanon actually refers to the lumpen proletariat as social dynamite as well. I mean, interesting. Just, just like an interesting thing. I 100% do not think Franz Fanon ever read Josiah Strong's. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a funny coincidence. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. So for their own class, capitalists felt that the excesses of the Gilded Age had made them weak. The comforts of modern life were effeminizing men who needed to rediscover their masculinity through Spartan diets and vigorous physical activity and MLM schemes, we might say. Yeah, Hilariously, of course. would be weird if we were going through a similar type scenario <laughs> today, right? It's hard to imagine, you know, this is they are products of their time, I guess. There's no no way that there's any parallels to today with uh, with this yeah. stuff. I know it's almost impossible, but try and imagine being able to transport yourself to this time of the men in power being like desperately and sadly uh, feeling inadequate and yeah. like they have to act yeah. out. <laughs> so at Ivy League colleges, this meant the rise of football as the dominant sport on campus, where at Yale it consumed one eighth of the school's budget more than any academic program. Internationally, Teddy Roosevelt opined that the U.S. needed a war to test its manliness. Josiah Strong, who mentored Roosevelt and Alfred Thayer Mahan, more on him later, put <laughs> words to this new narrative that was being created for the nation. It seems to me that God, with infinite wisdom and skill, is training the Anglo-Saxon race for an hour sure to come in the world's future. Heretofore... There has always been in the history of the world a comparatively unoccupied land westward, into which the crowded countries of the east have poured their surplus populations. But the widening waves of migration, which millenniums ago rolled east and west from the valley to the Euphrates, meet today on our Pacific coast. There are no more new worlds. The unoccupied arable lands of the earth are limited and will soon be taken. The time is coming when the pressure of the population on the means of subsistence will be felt here as it is now felt in Europe and Asia. Then will the world enter upon a new stage of its history, the final competition of races, for which the Anglo-Saxon is being schooled. If I read not amiss, this powerful race will move up and down Mexico, down up upon Central and South America, out upon the islands of the sea, over upon Africa and beyond. And can anyone doubt that the result of this competition of races will be the survival of the fittest? The world's scepter passed from Persia to Greece, from Greece to Italy, from Italy to Great Britain, from Great Britain to the scepter is today departing. It is passing on to Greater Britain, to our mighty West, there to remain for there is no further West, beyond the Orient. Like the star in the east, which guided three kings with their treasures westward, until at length it stood still over the cradle of the young Christ. So the star of empire, rising in the east, has ever beckoned the wealth and power of the nations westward. It's always exciting when somebody in the 19th century starts talking about the competition of the races. You yeah, know, yeah. You know, we're, we're going to a good place. <laughs> 
<laughs> so in his 1888 book, The Winning of the West, Teddy Roosevelt expanded the American religion of manifest destiny outward beyond the West. Quote, the most ultimately righteous of all wars is a war with savages, though it is apt to be also the most terrible and inhuman. The rude, fierce settler who drives the savage from the land lays all civilized mankind under a debt to him. American and Indian, Boer and Zulu, Cossack and Tartar, New Zealander and Maori, in each case the victor, horrible though many of his deeds are, has laid deep the foundations for the future greatness of a mighty people. The consequences of struggles for territory between civilized nations seem small by comparison. Looked at from the standpoint of the ages, it is of little moment whether Lorraine is part of Germany or of France. <laughs> That's going to be an issue, Teddy. I got to tell you. It's going to be an issue real soon. <laughs> whether the northern Adriatic cities pay homage to Austrian Kaiser or Italian king. But it is of incalculable importance that America, Australia, and Siberia should pass out of the hands of their red, black, and yellow aboriginal owners and become the heritage of the dominant world races. Yeah, the Europeans will never fight again because they're in a civilizational, you know, uh, they're having a civilizational developmental period here. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, nothing they're, to worry about good. in the future. Mm-hmm. Everybody's good. <laughs> <laughs> Behind all this talk of holy civilizational struggle, more worldly interest could be seen. In our country, Strong spends the bulk of his chapter on Western supremacy, cataloging the mineral land value of America's Western territories. As for its overseas possessions, Strong notes that, quote, commerce follows the missionary on their civilizing mission. And with Africa and Asia, quote, added to our market, What is to prevent the United States from becoming the mighty workshop of the world? Alfred Thayer Mahan's 1890 book, The Influence of Sea Power Upon History, became a blueprint for modern empire. Yet, as historian Daniel Immerwar notes, quote, Mahan didn't care about democracy or individualism. His concern was trade. The wealth of nations, he argued, came from maritime commerce. Yet ships could not simply cast off for distant lands. They needed ports, coaling stations, warehouses, and other way stations along their path. They also needed naval protection, which required still more overseas bases. I'm riding solo, solo. In 1895, Cuban rebels, led initially by Jose Marti, launched an uprising against Spain to win independence. The Spanish responded to the uprising with brutal oppression, forcing Cubans into concentration camps and massacring civilians. Still, the Cuban rebels beat back the Spanish forces, and in 1897, the new prime minister of Spain began searching for an exit from Cuba. Marti would die early on in the campaign, but... In his last missive, he asked compatriots not to just carry on the fight against Spain, but, quote, to prevent, by the independence of Cuba, the United States from spreading over the West Indies and falling, with that added weight upon other lands of our America. 
Yeah, Marti is kind of interesting because he had this whole leadership theory that if you're in charge of a, like, you know, army or whatever, you should always be at the front of the line, you know, because, like, if you're asking your soldiers to do it, you should be up there, like, in front doing it with them. Uh, he died in, like, the second battle. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, it's, it's something that sounds nice in yeah. theory, but it's probably, like, pretty, like, uh, abysmal for actual, like, military strategy. Yeah, in practice, the uh, unifying leader of your movement should probably be in the back. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) that's actually the best place. Yeah, Uh, as we're gonna learn, uh, that might not have been the best situation for the Cuban rebels to be in. Is uh, minus one Marti. So the United States quickly took an interest in the affairs of the island. American desires to annex Cuba dated back to Thomas Jefferson. And now, with rebel forces poised to take the island back from Spain and undergo a program of land reform, the time had finally come for the U.S. to act. President McKinley rejected multiple treaty offers from Spain in the spring of 1898 that would have granted the island its independence. McKinley publicly dismissed the offers as insincere while privately plotting a U.S. occupation of the island with his cabinet. With large U.S. investments on the island to protect, Cuba could not be allowed to be free. McKinley sent the USS Maine to set anchor in Havana to protect American business interests by reminding Cuban rebels of the limits of their freedom. On February 15th, the Maine exploded in Havana Harbor, killing 260 men on board. It was the worst American military disaster since Little Bighorn. The explosion was caused by an accidental ignition of powder stores in the ship's hull by the sailors themselves, but that mattered little. The U.S. now had its pretext for going to war. In June, American soldiers landed on a beach outside of Santiago. The beach had been cleared of Spanish soldiers by Cuban rebels ahead of the landing. U.S. soldiers marched into Santiago, fighting three minor skirmishes along the way, while American cruisers sank the aging Spanish naval vessels resting at port. Having taken the city with little to no resistance, the American command then banned Cuban rebels from entering Santiago and ordered them to disband. Back in D.C., Secretary of War Elihu Root and Connecticut Senator Orville Platt. No relation. <laughs> no relation. No relation. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> Senator Orville Platt has no relation to our co-host, Brian Platt, for the record. I promise everybody in my family lineage is a dirt farmer. <laughs> We've all been dumb and poor, I promise. <laughs> They were busy connecting the Platt Amendment, again, no relation, which would become the centerpiece of 20th century American foreign policy. Journalist Stephen Kinzer explains, Under the Platt Amendment, the United States agreed to end its occupation of Cuba as soon as the Cubans accepted a constitution with provisions giving the United States the right to maintain military bases in Cuba, the right to veto any treaty between Cuba and any other country, the right to supervise the Cuban treasury, and the right to intervene for the preservation of Cuban independence or the maintenance of a government adequate for the protection of life, property, and individual liberty. In essence, the Platt Amendment gave Cubans permission to rule themselves as long as they allowed the United States to veto any decision they made. In 1901, the Platt Amendment was signed into law. After being warned that failing to agree to the terms of the amendment would lead to the U.S. would lead the U.S. to impose even harsher terms on the island, Cuban delegates, in a closed-door meeting, agreed to the U.S.'s terms. 
Cuba would remain a colony of the United States for nearly 60 years. Back in the U.S., Americans were perplexed by the anger of the Cuban people at the occupation. Stephen Kinsner describes, Most Americans had little regard for Cubans, so it was natural that they would reject such protests. Many went even further. They were angry that Cubans had not fallen on their knees to thank the United States for liberating them. News correspondents reported that instead of embracing American soldiers, the Cubans seemed sour, sullen, conceited, vain, and jealous. One wrote of his astonishment to find that they were not, quote, filled with gratitude towards us. Wow, shocking. Yeah. <laughs> Glad that uh, Americans uh, have gotten smarter on that when it comes to foreign policy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> While Cuba stole the headlines, the first shot of the Spanish-American War happened in the faraway Philippines. It was a land so foreign to Americans that an advisor had to show President McKinley where it was on a globe when delivering the news. Shortly after the USS Maine suicide bombed itself for the Empire in Havana Harbor, Secretary of the Navy Teddy Roosevelt dispatched a fleet of American ships to the Philippines to destroy the Spanish fleet in Manila Bay. On May 1st, Commodore George Dewey wiped out the Spanish fleet with such speed and suddenness it shocked people in the U.S. Historian Bruce Cummings describes the battle. Admiral George Dewey's decisive attack on the fleet at Manila provided a large mass of American patriots with another lightning victory and dealt a quick death blow to the Spanish Empire in the Pacific. Of course, it was hard to tell here, and in much of the war, whether Dewey was brilliant or the Spanish incompetent. In any case, he outgunned them two to one, with the Spanish guns ranging from antiques to brand new cannons that somehow they had forgotten to mount. In Cuba, an opera bouffe ensued, in which an enfeebled Spain, in Robert Dalek's words, outdid the United States in military ineptitude. With the Spanish fleet destroyed and Filipino rebels having largely beaten back the Spanish occupying forces, U.S. Marines easily seized the city of Manila. The first shot of the Spanish-American War was fired on May 1st. By mid-August, the exhausted Spanish Empire was defeated and a protocol of peace declared between the U.S. and Spain. On December 10th, both countries signed the Treaty of Paris, which handed the United States the Philippines, Guam, Cuba, and Puerto Rico. Naturally, no one from any of these lands was allowed to participate in the construction of the treaty as anything other than an observer. The end of the war brought praise from those that believed that the United States had extended its civilizing mission overseas. Inspired by the war, Rudyard Kipling penned The White Man's Burden in 1899, where he urged the civilized nations to wage quote, savage wars of peace, to subdue the half-devil and half-child, people of the colonial world. Those closer to the center of power in D.C. held an even more cynical evaluation of the splendid little war. While asking Congress to ratify the Treaty of Paris, McKinley urged, quote, We could not turn the Philippines over to France or Germany, our commercial rivals in the Orient. That would be bad business and discreditable. Speaking on the floor of the Senate in 1900, Senator Albert Beveridge was even more clear. Quote, our largest trade henceforth must be with Asia. The Pacific is our ocean. More and more, Europe will manufacture the most it needs, secure from its colonies the most it consumes. Where shall we turn for consumers of our surplus? Geography answers the question. China is our natural customer. 
She is nearer to us than to England, Germany, or Russia, the commercial powers of the present and the future. They have moved nearer to China by securing permanent bases on her borders. The Philippines gives us a base at the door of all the East. Oh, wow. Very accurate uh, prediction there. Yeah. Surely yeah. China's just going to be the main customer. <laughs> yeah, China will be the customer. America will be the producer. Yep. <laughs> it's amazing how nothing changes. <laughs> The 1899 occupation of the Philippines quickly led to a native anti-imperialist uprising and guerrilla warfare against American occupation troops. The U.S. occupational forces launched a massive terror campaign against the Filipino population. From historian Bruce Cummings. Men, women, and children were slaughtered. Captured guerrillas were tortured with the water cure, forcing water down the throat. Good thing we stopped doing that, right? Mm -hmm. Among other techniques. One town after another was put to the torch, destroying the food stocks. One million tons of rice and 6,000 homes destroyed in just one week in 1901, ultimately forcing masses of Filipinos into protected zones. General William Shafter thought it might be necessary to, quote, kill half of the Filipinos in order that the remaining half of the population may be advanced to a higher plane of life than their present semi-barbarous state affords. And Secretary of War Elihu Root recommended using, quote, methods which have proved successful in our Indian campaigns. As the war of occupation carried on, the atrocities escalated. Cummings continues. American atrocities were indulged liberally, like previous attacks on Indians. And not a few made that comparison, including General Howland Jake Smith, who fought the insurgency like an Indian war. Quote, kill and burn, kill and burn. The more you kill and burn, the more you please me. He wanted to turn the island of Samar into a howling wilderness, but drew the line at killing children. His men were authorized only to kill men and women above the age of 10. How magnanimous. Exactly. Uh, similarly, uh, the U.S. will give an order in the Iraq War to only kill uh, people above the age of 13. So that's, uh, that's where we've gone from 1900 to today. Is I mean, that's progress, the, right? Yeah, the killing age was 10 and up at that time, and now it's 13 <laughs> and up. So, you know, uh, childhood just keeps extending further and further, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Life expectancy is going up, baby. <laughs> When President Roosevelt got wind of Howland Jake's statements, he called a cabinet meeting and instantly demanded all the facts of the situation, punishment of those guilty of cruelty or brutality, and the court-martial of General Smith. Elihu Root, however, justified Smith's actions via the brutality of the insurrectos and the half-devil and half-child nature of the Filipinos. While Governor William Howard Taft thought Filipinos inferior to the most ignorant Negro and completely unfit for self-government. Side note, uh, General Smith was never uh, court-martialed. None of those things happened. Uh, they just they had <laughs> this conversation and they all just high-fived each other and just kept doing it. It's kind of like when you start like just kind of like a, a bullshit org to like you know like pad the resume and then it just turns into mm -hmm. something bigger. It's like yeah, um, it's like the CEO at me on LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, by the way, this is also uh, extremely classic uh, Teddy Roosevelt bullshit, too, which is he read this and was like, oh, this sounds terrible. And then his advisors were like, no, Teddy, it sounds good. And he's just like, yeah, it sounds good, actually. And they're oh, like, actually, okay. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, actually, it sounds good. One of our dumbest presidents. Just absolutely fucking moron. Uh, anyways. <laughs> 
Civilian massacres were paired with a system of political repression that was growing in sophistication. The Sedition Act of 1901 banned the formation of secret societies, having its object, in whole or in part, the promotion of treason, rebellion, or sedition, or the promulgation of any political opinion or policy, as well as making it illegal for any person to advocate orally or by writing or printing or by like methods of the independence of the Philippine Islands or their separation from the United States, either by peaceful or forcible means. In 1903, the U.S. created the Philippine Constabulary, an internal colonial police force designed to repress the rebellions of the unruly natives and placed a former Confederate officer, Luke Wright, in charge. Past parallel to the creation of the Constabulary was the Reconcentration Act, which allowed the establishment of concentration camps that held as many as 451,000 people by 1905. Using the Sedition Act, the Constabulary rounded up dissidents, enforced a forced labor system, and filled the concentration camps. During these roundups, the Constabulary created a massive database of suspected radicals that were slated to be rounded up during a crisis. Historian Alfred McCoy describes the political warfare in the Philippines. After five years of fighting rural plots from 1902 to 1907, the constabulary adapted both its officer corps and order of battle for political operations to contain strikes, street rallies, and mass meetings. Instead of deploying rifle companies against armed peasants, the constabulary used its information division for intensified surveillance of Manila's militants. In this difficult political transition, the constabulary applied its coercive powers for the steady demoralization and destruction of groups that threatened the colonial order. Radical or non-cooperating leaders who operated outside the bounds of electoral politics through union organizing or street rallies were subjected to surveillance, infiltration, and ultimately arrest and prison. By penetrating these radical organizations, the constabulary sought to destroy them from within through psychological profiling, disinformation, black propaganda, and entrapment. Most important, the U.S. regime strove to corrode the tenuous bonds of trust that held the upper echelons of these groups together, depriving them of effective leadership. Under the pressure of this strategy, the Filipino radical movement would soon implode amid suspicion and betrayal be crazy if they did something like that here right yeah i I would never i would never think of them to be capable of something to do that here maybe like you know in 60 plus years or so and it's worth noting the guy who created this system for the philippine constabulary of you know one keeping records of all supposed radicals and then you know uh infiltrating the organizations and stuff uh actually becomes like Hoover's right-hand man in the FBI, and the FBI models all of its uh, COINTELPRO program and stuff. It's actually modeled after this Filipino uh, occupation of the Philippines. Yeah, I mean, the way that you just described that, it just, uh, you could literally, if you told me that you were describing COINTELPRO and, like, you know, the FBI's, like, you know, like, domestic plots, like, against, you know, like, radicals and people organizing, um, I I would believe you. It sounds like a copy and paste. Yep, and that's, in fact, what it was. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Empire always comes home, baby. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. The long and brutal occupation of the Philippines would lead to a massive death toll among the native population that is estimated to have numbered anywhere from 200,000 to 1 million dead. But mass violence was not the only legacy of the war. 
The mechanism of political repression that was developed during this time in the Philippines would later be brought back to the U.S. and used against political dissidents and those that would seek black civil rights. Solo. I'm riding solo. So. <laughs> At the reunion of Confederate veterans held in Atlanta in 1898, John Gordon, commander of the United Confederate Veterans, opened the ceremony stating that Spain allowed, quote, our boys to once more be wrapped in the folds of the American flag. He argued that their heroism had led to the complete and permanent obliteration of all sectional distrust and to the establishment of the too-long-delayed brotherhood and unity of the American people. As Grandin states, quote, The War of 1898 both relegitimated the Confederacy and allowed resurgent racists to drape themselves in the high ideals of a now-reconciled national history. The imperialist war effort brought North and South back together, but it did so on the cultural terms of the unreconstructed South. McKinley took a victory tour of the South with a Confederate flag pinned to his lapel in 1898, while Congress authorized the return of captured Confederate flags. Parades and celebrations commemorating the Confederacy, strictly monitored and limited after the Civil War, became regular events in Southern towns. In 1914, Woodrow Wilson would even dedicate a monument to the Confederacy in Arlington National Cemetery, urging people to, quote, forget the past, and look forward to the future. His commemoration launched a building boom for cheap Confederate war memorials that were placed all over the country. As you might guess, like in, you know, within the last four years, we've, uh, these cheap Confederate monuments have uh, been highlighted. Um, one, <laughs> one being like so cartoonishly bad that like I had to double take. Remember like the guy who like kind of like has his mouth ajar, like with like a pistol kind of like pointed to the side yeah, riding a horse. That's the Nathan Bedford Forest uh, Memorial, <laughs> which I believe is in somewhere in Tennessee, and yeah. uh, looks like absolute shit. It, it, and, dog shit. <laughs> yeah, and part of the reason they look like shit is because they were trying to throw them up so quickly. I mean, it literally was like a propaganda <laughs> war that was being fought. And and, and to that point, uh, let's tell let's let's dive into a little Seattle history, Munya. Uh, oh, here's okay. A story that I'm sure that you are not familiar with. Um, <laughs> but Seattle, of course, had its own chapters of you know the daughters of the Confederacy and you know sons of Confederate veterans. You know all these. Groups. They did. I thought they're like you know. I thought Seattle was like just deep in the north. Why were they like? Yeah. What, yeah. What, where the did city, that come from? A city that literally like basically wasn't in existence during the Civil War. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know, no, uh, the Confederate you know had its own uh, Confederate uh, memorials, right? And so they got very active around 1909. And January of that year, they actually dedicated a giant fir tree in Ravenna Park to Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Now, what part of this, which is funny, is by dedicated, what I mean is they nailed a plaque to the tree. <laughs> they just Get said, General Robert E. Lee, he rocked, you know, like two thumbs up <laughs> on either side. Uh, and hilariously, the dean of the University of Washington gave the commemoration, which he began with. Quote, to my mind, history contains no other tragedy quite equal 
to the tragedy of Robert E. Lee. And it goes on to talk about what a tough time Robert E. Lee had deciding between slavery and the Union, you know. Uh, but, you know, hey, you got to make choices in life, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. Make yeah. <laughs> what a predicament uh, he was in. Yeah. And so the owner of the park, because Ravenna Park at the time was privately owned, uh, added at the very end, quote, this dedication was another reminder that sectional bitterness engendered by the Civil War is gone forever. No more problems, Munia. Nothing to worry oh, about. All wow. right. Wow. <laughs> so, Fascinating. Hilariously, that later that year, uh, Seattle held a event called the Alaska Yukon Pacific Exposition, which was essentially a World's Fair, right? Uh, to show the city off, right? As the gateway mm. to the East, you know, as the collector of the gold of the Yukon, <laughs> et cetera, right? Uh, one of the days of that fair was called Dixie Day and was dedicated to a commemoration of the South. Uh, would you like to hear what the Seattle Times had to say in the lead up to it? Uh, I would love to. All right. So a month before Dixie Day, the Seattle Times advertised, uh, this is in an article about Dixie Day that's essentially just pitching going to the fair. Dixie Day will be one of Amity, Sweet Taters, Watermelon, and Plantation Melodies. Oh, all right. Later, the, this is immediately afterwards, they let people know that, hey, at Dixie Day, there was a watermelon eating contest led by the Georgians who will, <laughs> who will meet all comers from any part of the South. The committee in charge gives assurance that there'll be no shortage of melons. <sighs> so, Moodya, at this point, you're probably wondering, what was going on at Dixie Day? Well, I'm going to describe to you what happened. This is from uh, the official history of the Seattle chapter of the American Daughters of the Confederacy. So the reception room was draped in Confederate flags, with the stars and stripes conspicuous above all. The program included receptions for visiting governors, a banquet, and a musical festival with a troupe of Negro Jubilee singers aided by a banjo club. Souvenirs of small cotton bales were to be pinned on the participants' clothing, plus 500 pounds of cotton bowls to be given out were shipped up from New Orleans. And during it, of course, they had the watermelon eating contest mentioned before, but also uh, one of the chapter's committee members, this is one of the daughters of the Confederacy, even paid a visit to an ex-slave who was 104 years old. Could you uh, imagine uh, having gotten out of slavery, uh, moved as far from the South as he could get, which is basically Seattle, essentially, uh, like geographically, uh, not politically, obviously, but geographically, Yeah, gotten to the ripe old age of 104 and then had one of these fucks come visit you, <laughs> like oh, come into your house. My fucking God. I searched everywhere for some description of this visitation and all I could ever find was this one sentence. I would die to know what was what happened in this whole thing. That that is so psycho on so many levels. <laughs> how the fuck did she even like find this? I like uh, how uh, I, I yeah I'm I'm baffled at the whole con- at the whole thing. Yeah, a little concerned that they're keeping track of where the ex slaves all. Yeah, are, like know? really though, <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, incredible. Surely the ex slave was not like there. At, like they had to actually like you know find no, no. like it's very clear they went to the ex slave's house. Yeah, that person just lived in Seattle and they just paid him a visit. Oh, (laughs) Jesus fuck, dude. 
Incredible. Incredible. Well, the money that was raised from Dixie Day uh, was used to buy a plot at Lakeview Cemetery where they were going to put a memorial to the Confederacy. Later, they were able to purchase a bit of stone from Stone Mountain, Georgia, uh, the birthplace of the second wave of the Ku Klux Klan, (laughs) to build the monument. What the fuck, dude? That monument (laughs) sat in Lakeview Cemetery, which, by the way, for people who aren't from Seattle, Lakeview Cemetery is the most prominent cemetery in Seattle. All the founders of the city are buried there. Every rich person is buried there. And uh, Bruce Lee is buried there. So, look, this is the premier city uh, city cemetery, uh, which also carries a giant memorial to the Confederacy. And let me correct myself, carried a giant memorial to the Confederacy. <laughs> because in 2017... Uh, that monument was put on a list of monuments that should be removed nationally because they are fucking offensive. And it was done in the wake of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. Initially, Seattle protesters spray painted the monument. Then somebody smashed it with a hammer. (laughs) And then finally, somebody tied it, you know, it was a big, tall monument. Somebody tied the monument to, I'm presuming, a truck or something and pulled it over. All right, smashing it up. At that point, Lakeview Cemetery said they would stop trying to replace and repair the monument. (laughs) Although they have made zero commitment to not doing that in the future, they have said they're just not going to do it in the present. So it might rise again, but for the moment remains down. Now, I did find this from Ed Murray, who was our mayor at the time, uh, showing an amazing act of Democrat brain. After the monument got pulled down by protesters, Murray said, yes, the monument to the Confederacy should be removed, but so should the statue of Lenin that stands outside a coffee shop. Oh, oh God, man. Just Much. just take me out right now. Yeah, total Democrat brain. Uh, which, by the way, you know, Ed Murray, uh, again, for people not familiar with Seattle politics, uh, once famously said that Antifa was exactly the same as ISIS. And then when mm-hmm. was pressed on it, was like, well, Antifa spray painted art. They destroyed public art. That's what ISIS does. That's what ISIS does. They they, they they take <laughs> artifacts and uh, destroy them too. So <laughs> you think about it. So I just wanted to read real quick. This is a statement from the people who eventually pulled down the monument, uh, who sent an anonymous statement to the paper. Uh, quote, This action is for everyone living or dead who has been stolen, murdered, enslaved, raped, tortured, brutalized, terrorized, displaced, incarcerated, colonized, exploited, or separated from land, family, and culture by white supremacy. May the memory of those who have gone home be a blessing to us all, and may their descendants know the peace of true and everlasting justice. And so, just a interesting little bit of seattle history there uh from dixie day to 2020 when they finally agreed to not put the damn monument back up just another side note in 1984 diane feinstein raised a confederate flag over the city hall in san francisco (laughs) while she was mayor and on three separate occasions somebody climbed the flagpole and pulled the confederate flag down and Diane Feinstein specifically had it raised back up again. On the third occasion, the uh, the person who pulled it down raised up a flag of the Union Army instead <laughs> that somebody had given them. <laughs> and Feinstein had that flag taken down and shredded so she could re-raise the Confederate flag. 
like San Francisco. So, I mean, yeah. So this was done in the wake, by the way, of the uh, participants in the Greensboro massacre, where uh, Klan members killed a bunch of uh, uh, you know socialists. There's some sort of socialist party uh, members in Greensboro, North Carolina. Some Klansmen just shot them down in the street with the aid of police officers, and then, of course, were acquitted <laughs> in court. Yeah. Uh, Diane Fancy raised it over San Francisco City Hall, raised the Confederate flag the day the Greensboro killers were acquitted. That is so fucking insane, dude. Like, wow. I, <laughs> Feinstein, I'm not, I'm not like, surprised, but it's just, like, su- such a psycho, psycho move um, to do, mm-hmm. you know? Like, just in solidarity with you know yeah <laughs> the confederates and like white terror yeah and i mean we're gonna go on talking about it but I, I think this is just a little taste of how deeply this like reunion became right like yeah grandin's right we settled sexual differences on the terms of the south <laughs> the yeah. south won yep. the political battle essentially so wow some 30 years later after 1900 uh, at a convention for the United Spanish War Veterans, Chaplain Arthur Sykes told a long-winded told a long-winded story about how the first two American soldiers to die in the Spanish-American War were the sons of a Confederate veteran and the son of a Union veteran. "Quote: The blood of the North and the blood of the South mingled," Sykes said to the applause of the crowd, "and forevermore the North and South of the United States were to be united." This is kind of like this like TikTok trend that you're seeing now with like these like liberals where they're like, I'm a vaccinated Democrat um, who like supports abortion. And this is my friend, a unvaccinated Republican who uh, it believes in pro-life, but we are united together as friends. And like it gets like, you know, f- five million likes and like, you know, like, I mean, like, damn, this I love the unity. Yeah. And I mean, this is certainly the history of uh, modern liberalism of the last 50 years, which is conservatives move to the right, uh, creating conflict, right? Then liberals mm-hmm. move to the right to meet them in order to, again, reduce conflict and maintain the new sat- status quo synthesis of a just more right wing country, right? And yes. this is forever the thing of, yeah, my. Uh, my conservative friend uh, insists on waving his Confederate flag while yelling out a certain word in public because why shouldn't he get to write the right to say it? After all, they say it too. Yeah. And I've come to agree, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I'm standing with them and I'm doing it too. Now. See, we can, we can meet in we, the middle, guys. We can meet in the middle and we can get along. <laughs> that is Democrats to a fucking team. <laughs> Ugh, brutal. Speaking of which, uh, we're about to run through some quotes that are going to involve a favorite word of people of the progressive era. Um, Yes. So, yeah. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) It's the word that um, the white boys in the suburbs listening to Get Rich or Die Trying would uh, say when the windows are rolled up in the car, but never when the windows are rolled down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) This new unity would also have immediate consequences for America's new imperial possessions. Southerners made up a disproportionate number of the soldiers and officers waging these imperial wars, and they brought the customs of the Jim Crow South with them. Whether in Havana or Manila, the word soldiers used to refer to the people of these colonies was the N-word. 
Reporting on the war in the Philippines, Henry Loomis Nelson told his readers, quote, Our troops in the Philippines look upon all Filipinos as of one race and condition, and being dark men, they are therefore and entitled to all the contempt and harsh treatment administered by white overlords to the most inferior races. Another journalist covering the war, amused by the soldiers' racism, wrote, quote, If a man is white, if he speaks English, if he knows his lines and we know them, he is as good as anybody on earth. If he is white and yet does not understand our customs, we insist that he shall have equal rights with us. If he is any other color, too often we include him in one general class called a class beneath our notice, to which, as far as our soldier is concerned, all Filipinos belonged. A black sergeant wrote of his time in the Philippines, quote, You have no idea the way these people are treated by the Americans here. The first thing in the morning is the and the last thing at night is the Another black soldier noted that whites were, quote, establishing their diabolical race hatred in all its home rancor in Manila. Filipinos made use of this burgeoning race war to appeal to black soldiers to abandon their units. One black soldier recalled a question asked of him by a young Filipino boy. Quote, Why does the American Negro come to fight us when we are much a friend to him? Why don't you fight those people in America who burn Negroes that make a beast of you? Indeed, many black soldiers did desert during the war, some even joining the Filipino rebellion. David Foggin became a captain in the Philippine Revolutionary Army after deserting in 1899. He became an obsession for Americans as he harried U.S. troops. Fagan would ultimately be killed in 1901. His partially decomposed head turned into the U.S. government for a reward of $1,000. Yeah, and the Fagan story is interesting, too, because... It also brings in all the Indian War stuff. You know, Fagan is described as having gone native, right? Mm. You know, he was fighting off the reservation and went native. You know, uh, all the usual language of war they brought from the Indian Wars and the racism they brought from slavery. <laughs> yeah. Was deployed. Um, which, interestingly, I mean, President Teddy Roosevelt was even following the Fagan case closely. I mean, this was a national obsession. Wow. This, like, black officer had essentially was fighting with the Filipinos and leading a, a band of uh, insurrectos. This racism exhibited by American commanders and soldiers naturally fed into the brutal violence of the war itself. Grandin tells the story of Colonel Littleton Waller, who led troops in Cuba, the Dominican Republic, and the Philippines. Waller had a deep Confederate pedigree, the son of Virginia slavers, some of whom were killed in the Nat Turner Uprising in 1831. Grandin notes, quote, Troops under Waller's command, the majority Southerners, committed widespread torture and cruelty. They could kill, in words abroad, and instead of being punished by the federal government and the Union Army, they were celebrated and welcomed home with pomp and parades. Of course, this racism and violence could not be contained to the imperial periphery. During the Spanish-American War, McKinley opened up opportunities for black men to enlist in the military, but, as Grandin notes, quote, It was not an auspicious moment to mix thousands of gun-carrying white men with thousands of gun-carrying black men in Florida where units mustered before being shipped out. Grandin continues, quote, A backlash followed. 
white soldiers and residents rioted and rebelled against the public presence of African-American soldiers. In one incident, drunken white soldiers grabbed a two-year-old African-American baby from his mother's arms and used him for target practice. The Tampa Morning Tribune complained at the time, quote, The colored infantrymen stationed in Tampa and vicinity have made themselves very offensive to the people of the city. The men insist upon being treated as white men are treated, and the citizens will not make any distinction between the colored troops and the colored civilians. Yeah, crazy. They insist upon being treated as human beings. Awful. Oh, how dare they? Such racism was not to be found only in the Deep South. Wilson's invasion of Haiti revealed the ways in which the United States as a whole remained unchanged from its antebellum roots. After meeting Haitian officials, Wilson's Secretary of State, William Jennings Bryant, commented, quote, Dear me, think of it. Speaking French. Teddy Roosevelt, visiting Haiti in 1917 and meeting the Haitian Minister of Agriculture, joked to his cousin Franklin, quote, I couldn't help saying to myself, that man would have brought $1,500 at auction in New Orleans in 1860 for stud purposes. I couldn't help myself. I yeah, couldn't, I, just, you know. <laughs> I couldn't stop. <laughs> what was I, I mean, supposed to do? <laughs> just incredible. Incredible. This racism, of course, translated into hyper-violence on the ground. The Marine colonel who was put in charge of the island was fresh off a stint slaughtering civilians in the Philippines. Said of the Haitians, quote, They are real n- and no mistake real niggas beneath the surface. He refused any effort towards negotiation, rejecting any, quote, bowing and scraping to these coons. A marine inquiry at the time noted that, quote, indiscriminate killings of natives was common, while Schmedley Butler would later recall that his troops, quote, hunted the cacos like pigs. This brings up an important misconception about the progressive era. Contrary to some portrayals of the U.S. as being isolationist during this period, the United States pursued a very active policy of imperial intervention. U.S. imperial policies led to a coup in Hawaii in 1893, military intervention in the Philippines in 1899, in Cuba in 1898, 1906, 1912, and 1923, China in 1900 with seven other imperialist powers, Panama in 1903, the Dominican Republic in 1904 and again in 1916, Nicaragua in 1912, 1926, and 1936, Mexico in 1914 and 1916, Haiti in 1915, followed by a 30-year occupation, Honduras six times between 1911 and 1926, and the Soviet Union along with 13 other nations in 1919. The U.S. was one imperial player in capitalism's race to carve up the world. As every imperial power sought new resources to steal, new populations to exploit, and new markets to seize, they were going to run up against each other. And with the world divided, only a cataclysmic war could redivide the spoils. In 1914, war broke out in Europe, with the U.S. joining in 1917. All the imperial powers threw their populations into a meat grinder that used the technology and technique of modern industrial capitalism to kill 18 to 20 million people, an unprecedented orgy of violence. When the war ended, the most pressing priority was to redivide the colonial world among the victors. 
advance. A no-growth capitalism, as some of the more naive, uh, some of the more naive ecologists have argued for, is a contradiction in terms. The reason you invest is to accumulate, and your accumulation of capital has no purpose or meaning unless you can mix it with labor to yet increase your wealth further. And of course, you use large sums of it for personal consumption and for political power and for control of your culture and for that wonderful, good, happy life that you so like. As George Bush's wife said. We are millionaires, or we are not ashamed of it. We enjoy our wealth. And I thought, at last, they say, finally they say, instead of instead of the usual thing is, you know how we rich suffer and and uh, we're misjudged and, and it's just terrible being terrible rich. Being rich. rich. This microphone has a mind of its own. All right. Now that nature of expansion really affects the nature. Of, I mean, it's an important imperative because it means capitalism also can never stay home. It goes abroad. 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 Those corporations that stayed regional in New England years ago and decided not to go national. We can't even remember their names. They died. We had to go national, and those of us who are now national know we have to go international. We have to invest abroad. So one of the laws of capitalist motion and development is this inexorable expansion, and that means expansion into an expropriation of the third world, a process that's been going on for about 400 years, perpetrated by the Portuguese, the Spaniards, the Dutch, the Belgians, the French, the English. And most recently, most successfully, most impressively, by the American, 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 American. That is the American. That is by the ruling classes of these countries, not by the ordinary people. The ordinary people simply paid the costs of empire. The ordinary people simply sent their sons off to die on the plains of India or in the jungles of、um, the Congo or、uh, in Latin America, wherever else. But that expropriation of the third world has been going on for 400 years. Brings us to another revelation, namely that the third world is not poor. You don't go to poor countries to make money. There are very few poor countries in this world. Most countries are rich. The Philippines are rich. Brazil is rich. Mexico is rich. Chile is rich. Only the people are poor, but there's billions to be made there, to be carved out and to be taken. There's been billions for 400 years. The capitalist European and North American powers have carved out and taken the timber, the flax, the hemp, the cocoa, the rum, the tin, the copper, the iron, the rubber, the bauxite, the slaves, and the cheap labor. They have taken out of these countries. These countries are not underdeveloped; they're overexploited. I'm riding solo, solo. <laughs>
So, with all of this said, with that long laundry list of um, clear imperial wars during this time in the late 19th century and early 20th century, um, I'm just really curious, like, where does this myth of isolationism come from if there were so many of those, you know? Like, how did that myth of isolationism even form? Yeah, and so... Basically, that comes from two different things. One was the U.S.'s reluctance to enter World War One, which it did anyways. So, I mean, you know, <laughs> you can only claim isolationism <laughs> up to a point, right? Uh, as well as the refusal to join the League of Nations. And so people misread both those events. The U.S., the reason why the U.S. didn't enter World War One is, one, it was incredibly unpopular in the popu- amongst the population. Uh, Unlike in Western Europe, uh, the socialist movements in America also refused to endorse the war, (laughs) which Mm. uh, made it incredibly unpopular amongst workers and things like that. Uh, On top of that, there was this belief amongst the American ruling class that like, hey, why should we go to Europe and shed blood there? We'll just wait like buzzards over the top of it and pick the empires apart, you know, (laughs) as Europeans kill each other. Uh, which, by the way, will be the exact same argument they give for not entering World War II as well uh, in the delayed entry of the U.S. into World War II. Now, the League of Nations is very similar, which, you know, this becomes Woodrow Wilson's pet project after he has a very serious stroke and his brain fucking goes to mush. This is basically all he pushes for after the stroke. And, of course, the Senate hilariously just tells him to go fuck himself. Now... <laughs> A lot of this is pointed to, oh, that, that, those old fuddy-duddies in the Senate. They just don't get it. This is a new era. This is an era of international cooperation. They just don't understand, blah, blah, blah. And that's not it at all. The Senate basically said, we're not joining the League of Nations for two reasons. One, uh, Woodrow Wilson's weak, so I would be give him a victory. Fuck him. Uh, the other part of it, so that's just plain politics. But the other part of it is there was arguments being made in the Senate by you know and it, you know behind the scenes in the senate by guys like Elihu Root who are basically arguing look why should we negotiate with the Europeans we're in the catbird seat we don't have to negotiate and we could get more by not negotiating and taking instead and so the US basically doesn't join the League of Nations not because they're isolationists they jo- they don't join the League of Nations because they're hyper imperialist yeah. <laughs> cuz they're like why be constrained Right? Why have limits? Right? Yeah. You know, why negotiate with people we don't have to negotiate with? <laughs> and forever after this, uh, it has been written in children's textbooks as, you know, oh, this was a period of, you know, American isolationism. And I'm going to venture a guess that part of the way- reason why that works and why people believe it is all the things that we've described to you above in this episode were also creatively uh, and carefully left out of the textbook as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, when you leave out, like, all of those imperial conquests, suddenly <laughs> uh, yeah. the U.S. is very isolationist, you know, when you just leave out very key <laughs> moments in uh, yeah. conquest. Exactly. And so there was three big things that happened to American imperialism at this time, three big evolutionary steps it's going to take. Uh, you know, the first being the Teller Amendment. Yeah. When McKinley went to Congress to ask for a resolution supporting the independent struggle of the people of Cuba, really asking for a right to invade the island, the Teller Amendment was added to the resolution stating, quote, The United States hereby disclaims any disposition or intention to exercise sovereignty, 
jurisdiction, or control over Cuba, except for the pacification thereof, and asserts its determination, when that is accomplished, to leave the government and control of the island to its people. So basically what the Teller Amendment was saying, which, you know, a senator had just shoved into the little bill essentially approving money for the war against Cuba, was saying is like, okay, we're not going to occupy Cuba and we're not going to try and imperially control Cuba. Because there were some in the Senate and in the House who were against empire at this time, right? Mm. And so this was supposed to be a little safety latch in there that like, sure, sure, sure. We'll give the president and the military money and we'll give them the right to go kill people abroad. But surely this spell that I put in our spell book, which is laws, <laughs> will keep it from getting out of hand. Uh-huh. <laughs> they have to follow the rules, right? They gotta follow the rules. <laughs> <laughs> the Teller Amendment wound up not even being worth the paper that it was written on. Shocking. Yeah. <laughs> McKinley and then Roosevelt ignored the amendment with no political consequence. Oh, well, <laughs> that answers that. It demonstrated the extent to which, by 1900, anti-imperialist voices on their own were completely shut out from any political power or consideration. The amendment also brings up another interesting point. The two congressional acts that approved the military expeditions of 1898 only mentioned Cuba. No authorization was sought for invading the Philippines. And none was sought for unilaterally declaring Puerto Rico an American colony. Imperial war itself was increasingly off the table for political debate. Yeah, and I mean, essentially the wars themselves are increasingly becoming a function of the executive power, sole function of the executive power. Uh, which, you know, is tied to the Indian Wars. I mean, this is a progress we're making over the course of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. But by the time of the 20th century, you know, empire is just going to be too important to be debated. And <laughs> so it just gets taken off the table entirely. Ah, I, lo I love to live in a democracy, baby. Yeah, it rocks. <laughs> so the second major point about, you know, how empire changes at this time is Roosevelt's expansion of the Monroe Doctrine, all right? So, more aspirational than actionable when it was declared in 1823, the Monroe Doctrine unilaterally declared the Western Hemisphere the protectorate of the United States. Pledging to resist European incursion into Latin America, Roosevelt, now armed with the might to enforce it, expanded the Monroe Doctrine, granting, unilaterally, of course, the U.S. the right to intervene in Latin American countries to protect them from, quote, domestic threats. In what became known as the Roosevelt Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, Roosevelt stated in 1904, quote, chronic wrongdoing or an impotence which results in a general loosening of the ties of civilized society may, in America as elsewhere, ultimately require intervention by some civilized nation. And in the Western Hemisphere, the adherence of the United States to the Monroe Doctrine may force the United States, however reluctantly, in flagrant cases of such wrongdoing or impotence to exercise uh, to the exercise of an international police power. In short, the U.S. reserved for itself the right to intervene anywhere in Latin America where its political and economic interests were threatened. 
what President Taft referred to as, quote, the axiomatic principle that the government of the United States shall extend all proper support to every legitimate and beneficial American enterprise abroad. The U.S., of course, being the sole determiner of what is legitimate or beneficial. <laughs> so essentially, <laughs> the Monroe Doctrine said the U.S. will, you know, I mean, to the extent that they could at the time, would try and prevent Europe from you know, setting up colonies in the Americas, essentially saying the Western Hemisphere is for the United States and we'll block all colonial efforts from Europe uh, into that hemisphere. Where Roosevelt extends it is he says, oh, this isn't just enemies without. Now there's enemies within. And the U.S. want to block all efforts at essentially independence <laughs> in the Western Hemisphere as well. You know, uh, independence, of course, being defined as, you know, uh, people who are just acting crazy, man. And, you know, <laughs> we yeah, got to go down. Wackos. <laughs> yeah, for, the, for their own benefit. It's for their own benefit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, you know, an important, an important second leg to modern American imperialism, uh, which we're going to hear about a lot, I'm guessing, in the future. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the third is pursued by Woodrow Wilson. Wilson took this doctrine a step further. During the early years of the Mexican Revolution, President Wilson refused to intervene on any side. When General Victoriano Huerta briefly seized control over the Mexican state, Wilson refused to recognize the government. As the Beards note, quote, In so doing, Wilson took the position, revolutionary in the history of America's foreign policy, that it was his duty and right to withhold recognition from any government which did not measure up to the moral, political, and, most importantly, commercial standards of the United States. And again, a third important extension of the Roosevelt Corollary and stuff is uh, the U.S. apparently unilaterally has the right to determine whether a country is legitimate or not. (laughs) (laughs) Like, whether a country's government is legitimate or real. Um, yeah <laughs> you know and this has real world consequences which we'll get into later but one of which is that the uh korean war part of the reason why the korean war is allowed to happen in the way that it does is the soviet union is hilariously boycotting the u.n at the time so it gave up its security council seat but there's a fifth security council seat held by china at that time of the korean war china as you might remember is in in you know uh the communist party is in control of china right you know it is the modern version of china right it's now the people's republic of china mal is in charge uh presumably the communist party is deciding what to do with that uh seat so of course would never allow for a military intervention against their allies in korea uh hilariously the u.s has unilaterally decided china actually doesn't get to have the china seat at the u.n that that actually goes to Taiwan. Oh yeah, because you know, because <laughs> so, uh, land back to Taiwan, everyone. Because like, yeah. <laughs> ten guys sitting in a hotel in Taiwan <laughs> famously were China at the time. Yeah. And what's funny about that? So you end up getting China voting for a resolution for the U.S. to launch a just horrifying war in Korea, of which China is on the opposing side of that war fighting against the United States. So, you know, uh, but yeah, that all comes back to the fact that the the U.S., you know, through Wilson's sort of uh, precedent and doctrine here, 
withholds to itself the right to unilaterally declare the uh, legitimacy of any government on the planet. <laughs> awesome. That cool. is, yeah, it's a great power that America has. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad the whole planet got to vote on that one. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, speaking of the whole planet and like a global context, um, you know, someone from across the Pacific uh, had something to say about imperialism, and that is a man of Vladimir Lenin from Russia in the USSR at the time. Right before the 1917 October Revolution, Lenin penned imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism. And uh, this is like a monumental work, which correctly, I believe, identifies imperialism as this new form and mutation of capitalism and how imperialism is uh, used to bolster capital when basically all of the de like domestic like um, you know capital is exhausted um, you know nation states need to expand outwards and um, you know exercise imperialism which is when was just observing what was happening in a lot of Western Europe in France um, but in America as well um, Germany Britain France and America along with other empires but especially those four, um, Lenin was, um, you know, just evaluating those countries and theorizing about what the role of imperialism actually plays within capitalism. And um, this was mainly arguments against other notions like, you know, specifically in like the German Social Democratic Party of, um, you know, Karl Kotsky and others. Um, Kotsky argued that because of imperialism and like, you know, the um, globalization, uh, I guess globalization wouldn't be the right word, right? Because that's more of like, there's a specific, that's a specific term for yeah, the 1970s, I mean, but he's, like. He's almost, yeah, using it in a similar way to people talk, how people talk about globalization, which is he was essentially saying capitalism is becoming international, an international sort of interlocking of markets that would lead, and this was the key hilarious yes. point. To increase stability, in yeah. The so imperial core. Ba yeah, basically, like because <laughs> Which, like the argument he was making all the way up to 1914. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Karl Kotsky and um, you know like people liked him and like Western Marxists. Like Karl Kotsky was a um, was a Marxist in um, in Germany, leader of the Social Democratic Party of Germany, and like you know he believed that because like the you know economy got increasingly and like the capitalist hegemony got increasingly globalized right like there was different global markets that empire had its hands in and it was lo no longer um domestic that means that because these empires actually have vested interests and vested market interests in each other and have interdependence on these markets to um for the empires to succeed that will lead to increased stability less war and form what what Kosky would call ultra imperialism um sometimes uh quoted as super imperialism as well um lenin on the other hand said uh that is complete horseshit um you know these um <laughs> these empires uh you know because they have like you know different resources and competing interests even though they still are a part of the global capitalist hegemony right like being the global capitalist order and they're all participating in them and do have, um, you know, vested interests in these global markets um, and resources to uh, exploit the, the global south. 
they will still have competing interests with each other. And because of the inter interlocking and interdependence of these markets, the only way to shake up resources and to get more, right? Because these empires are still acting within their own imperial interests, even though they are a part of this, like, you know, broader class project of capitalism and imperialism, um, they could only solve this by a mass apocalyptic type of war which would end up being what world war one is all about the japanese empire the um german empire britain france and the, the u.s Turk. eventually you know all the empires that we forgot existed <laughs> yeah the the yeah they came back empire. yeah the, the, russian, <laughs> they all empire, right? the russian yeah. empire all, all, all of them all went to war and all fighting and they're fighting these are these are this is not a war against communism versus capitalism these are capitalist nations fighting against each other for control of resources in the global south and control of resources just globally overall as well um the war is the main tool um, of imperialism and capitalist nations will fight against each other for control of those resources is what Lenin argued. And I think that, you know, if you look at even history um, and by the way, like if you haven't read imperialism uh, by Lenin, it's actually really smart. Like if you, you know, when I was reading it, I felt like I was like reading a like, um, like an economics research paper or something. It was just so like disciplined, something that I like read maybe like on the, you know, financial times or like something, right? Like it was, um, it was very, it's very just like grounded, well-written and like, you know, very data driven. And par part of that reason is because he didn't want to get banned, um, you know, uh, but, you know, also yeah. it, it it is like a very um, digestible and like uh, extremely, great and analytical piece of work too. But I think what's so interesting is that um, over a hundred years uh, to it, this book still holds up and even more, I think it gets emphasized how right, um, you know, this analysis is. A lot of wars that we see, especially modern warfare too, is about control of resources as well. Um, another concept that um, Lenin, you know, theorized is that as these, uh, as capital continually consolidates and expands out into imperialism, the way to effectively, um, you know, streamline and make these imperial projects efficient is to basically consolidate and monopolize capital, right? So no longer is it, um, you know, hundreds of small little companies like competing against each other. Eventually, you know, with the introduction of global financial markets, um, you know, stocks really coming into its own, um, you know, nations can actually use leverage and equity to not only export their products, but export their capital as well, which means acquiring companies abroad, acquiring companies domestically and consolidating them into one, you know, mega corporation in a way, instead of having them all compete against each other. The monopolization of capital is coming at this time, and that coincides with imperialism as well. So instead of actually exporting just goods and services, right? Like let's say Great Britain, you know, like makes um, clothes and they export those clothes to India. Now Great Britain will actually take their technology that they produce like with um, how to actually construct the factory. And instead of exporting the clothes, they would actually export the actual factory to India itself. And India would then make those clothes and then they will ship back to, you know, all over, which is which was a new development. It's something that we kind of just almost primally know now. Right. Like, the like you know, whenever you see a good, you'll see say made in China, made in Vietnam, made in wherever. Right. Um, but that that was not always the case. So this export of capital where you're actually taking your own 
um, you know, industry and factories and exporting that itself to make India create those things instead of just selling it to them was um, a new concept, which was modeled after imperialism as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think if you look at the story we're telling about the United States and its journey west, we're essentially seeing what Lenin is talking about written across American history, which is the United States, you know, capitalism has its periodic crisis in the United States, its crisis of overproduction, its crisis of undercapitalization, etc. And it's constantly resolving those crises by not domestically changing, right? It solves those crises by moving west and stealing land right so it it solves the crisis by creating an ever larger pie by taking it from somebody else mm -hmm. eventually it's going to reach the end of the continent right and we see in albert beverage's comments that we mentioned above right like well who are we going to sell all this product to what are we, we aware of the new markets and again you know in a time of crisis what the u.s does is it leans on imperialism right it says oh well now we can go overseas and seize markets over there as well uh, all again, you know, uh, facilitated by this new form that you're talking about, Munoz, which is the corporation, right? Which in itself was created by the westward expansion in the United States context. It was created by the westward expansion of the United States through the railroad companies who formed yep. the first corporations because they're dealing with these very large networks, you know, very complicated pieces, right? And they're actually going to create, you know, what is essentially the professional managerial middle class out of it as well. Who guess who's going to fill up all the ranks of the Council on Foreign Relations and everything <laughs> else, you know, to build the U.S. empire? Uh, and the problem Lenin pointed to, as you correctly said, was, well, what do you do when there is nothing west to take anymore? What do you do when the empires have carved it all up and there's nothing, there's no more room for expansion? And remember, capitalism always has to expand or it collapses. And the answer to that was war. And, you know, the U.S., the story of American, uh, the American empire is one of constant expansion facilitated by war. You know, ultimately, when we get there by World War II, which will create the U.S. as we know it today. And then we could talk about maybe why uh, it seems to be in terminal decline as well. <laughs> <laughs> so... Well, we'll leave it that, and we'll give you guys a nice quote from Greg Grandin in his book, you know, to close out our discussion here of America's imperialism at the turn of the 20th century. The War of 1898 was, as one orator after another said, as one editorial after another insisted, and as one poet after another declaimed, a pact. The deal allowed Southerners to atone for their sedition against the nation even as they carried the banner of that sedition to the farthest corners of the earth. This war, and all the many wars that followed, updated the Jacksonian consensus for the 20th century world, a world in which African Americans were nominally free citizens, and there was no more land to take from Native Americans and give to the white working class. Overseas war had the effect of unifying the country, this time not some sections against others, but the whole nation. The money's not to be on the cows not to be on his freedom and liberty and access to a land to get rid of this abusive uh, government. It's free real estate.
frontera dice que siempre podrán saltar el muro por muy alto que sea. Ellos, junto a activistas, aseguran que la valla es el peor legado de la administración Trump y que no ha disminuido los cruces de Stay, stay.